Welcome to Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals, hosted by certified financial planners Justin Brownlee and Jared Machen of Brownlee Wealth Management, the only podcast dedicated to those of you in the oil and gas profession to help you optimize investments, lower future taxes, and grow your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Welcome back to another episode of FPOG, Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals. This week on the podcast, we have Nathan Meehan, Professor of Petroleum Engineering at Texas A&M. And uh, Nathan, we are thrilled to have you on today. Would love to just hear from you uh, a little bit about your career arc and where you've been uh, prior to your current role with Texas A&M. Great. Uh, Happy to do that. I was born in and Georgia, and uh, the state of Georgia has zero oil or gas wells. I didn't know what petroleum engineers were. I became a physics major at Georgia Tech because I kind of got tossed out of high school a year early, and I, I was able to spend my senior year of high school there at Georgia Tech, and, and the guy in charge of the program was a physics professor, and he made us all physics majors, and I don't know whether it was... Uh, because I got interested or, you know, just didn't do anything <laughs> to change it. But uh, a significant number of us became physics majors. So I, I got a degree in physics. Uh, and uh, time for grad school or time to graduate and get a job, I found these jobs I could have gotten that were terrible jobs, really, for the BS in physics. And I thought about graduate school. And I'm... I, I applied to a medical school, a law school. I, I didn't get into the really good medical schools, but I did get into one and I got into a law school and I got into grad schools in a couple of different topics. And uh, when I went to Georgia Tech, the first time I drove up, we filled our car and the gasoline was 19.9 cents a gallon. We had these things called gas wars. You, you young gut people don't know what a gas war is, but we used to have the, they would just constantly lower the gas price, 19.9 cents a gallon. In the beginning of my senior year, it was 75 cents a gallon. And so I, I, did, I didn't know much, but I thought there's got to be, there's something going on here. And sure enough, of course, uh, uh, oil prices had gone from $3 to, you know, Briefly higher, but certainly stayed at least 10. Um, and I learned about this idea from a Schlumberger recruiter uh, who, who had just found my resume in a pile. And uh, I had worked one summer job for about a week. <laughs> we were out in Wyoming. And <laughs> we were out of money. And my my brothers and I went to the local employment office, and you could do this. And they they, they he told me he says, "Can you operate, you know, uh, a grader?" And I had briefly operated a backhoe. And I said, "You know, you know, can you operate a bulldozer kind of thing?" I was like, "Sure, no problem." <laughs> well, perfect. Those are completely uh, they're not the same at all. I show up out there in what you would recognize as a, you know, a drilling site. And basically there were some stakes out there and he said, you got three days and you go and you need to dig as big a pit as you can between these stakes over here, dig it as deep as you get. And 
he pointed over to what we would now recognize as wellheads. <laughs> he says, whatever you do, stay away from those things. <laughs> and so, uh, I don't know, it was big chief drilling or somebody like that. And I, I, you know, finally, after most of the day, figured out how to run this thing. And I dug what, in retrospect, was a frack pit. This is a very weird kind of world back then, uh, where they would just take anybody off the street and let them leave them there with their bulldozer. Um, and so, uh, uh, you know, the guy showed up day two and I made some progress and, and he said, you're not really very good at this, are you? I said, yeah, but I'm getting better. And, but of course, during my breaks, I'd go over and look at these, these things. I, I didn't know what any of that was, uh, but it was like July 30th to August 2nd or something like that. And so on my resume, I put down July to August, you know, Big chief, <laughs> you know that's, that's why the Slumberjay recruiter said, "Oh, he's got a couple months here with some drilling company." I didn't know anything, but I go into this interview with this guy, and uh, he pulls out a well log, and it's got long straight lines, and then all of a sudden, uh, where the SP and resistivity are, they came way out and came back back in, then long straight lines. Well, and they were kind of lots of action there. And I mean, I was a physics major. I knew that there's constant signal and then there's all some changing signal and then back to constant signal that the changing signal might be the interesting stuff. So I pointed to that. I said, so here's the interesting stuff. He says, you found the pay. <laughs> there's no idea what this is, of course. Eventually they offered me a job after a three day interview down in Louisiana, we went onshore, offshore. They, they, I heard a lot of people from Georgia Tech and they brought like four or five of us down this interview. And I was the only physics major there. Others were engineers. And so they offered us all jobs. And uh, then they left us in a room with these Schlumberger engineers and uh, said, you can ask them any questions you want. And of course, the other guys were asking all sorts of questions. And finally, one of them turns to me and said, don't you have any questions? I said, yeah. Is there another job? that pays really well like this, but you don't have to work so hard as what you guys are describing. And he just looked disgusted. And he said, yeah, you know, those petroleum engineers, they stay back in the office and they tell us what to do and they make plenty of good money. <laughs> so fine. I went back to Georgia Tech. I'm going to go find, be a petroleum engineer. Of course, there's nobody hiring petroleum engineers at Georgia Tech. Georgia Tech's a great school. Every single one of their engineering programs is in the top 10. None of them are petroleum engineers. Remember, there's no oil wells in this state. So, uh, but they are hiring geophysicists. So I interviewed with Amico, and uh, uh, which of course was subsequently bought by BP. For those of you who are young people, <laughs> don't remember Amico, um, but uh, they were looking for geophysicists, and and they, I go and sign up for an interview, and he said, "Well, why do you want to be a geophysicist?" I said, "I don't. I want to be a petroleum engineer." And the guy says, well, you're kind of making a mistake. But, and he wrote down a name and a phone number on the back said to call this guy. And so sure enough, I call him. They offer me a summer internship. Uh, it's great. I love it. They say, look, you've got to get an engineering degree to be an engineer. So I applied to Colorado School of Mines, which is right by. I was in Denver. And then when I, I called my dad and told him. He said, no, no, no. I, my dad went to Oklahoma. We've got a business degree. And he says, oh, you've got a petroleum engineering program. 
So I applied there and they offered me a nice fellowship. So I went to OU and got a master's degree there and uh, uh, right when things were taking off. So I graduated in 76 and it, the petroleum engineering was going crazy at this point. Uh, in fact, a few years later, I would be interviewed in the Wall Street Journal for this, you know, uh, about this exciting change in how petroleum engineering was perceived. And so I, I went there and I, I came time to graduate. I had every uh, interview I went on. I got a job offer. Um, I think I got job offers for companies I didn't interview. It, it, this was really an exciting time. The, <laughs> the fall of 1976 was a great time to be getting out. Of, so I, I went to work for a company called Champlin Petroleum, which was renamed Union Pacific Resources. I was there 24 years in total. But during that time period, I, I took a break to go back and get a PhD. Uh, and I went to Stanford. I, uh, I'd gotten... I moved very quickly up the technology ladder and I, I realized for a variety of reasons that I enjoyed that. And I enjoyed sort of the technology leadership more than I did the general management type things. And, and I wasn't necessarily that good at the general management type stuff. Uh, and so in an event, uh, uh, they got bought by Anadarko at one point. I'd already gone back, gotten a PhD, great decision in my life, became the chief engineer for the company, became the VP of, you know, over all the geology, geophysics, drilling, uh, loved, loved that company, loved the positions. Uh, I'd still be there today. Uh, but, you know, they got bought and uh, Oxy came by and offered me a look like a similar position, went there. Um, it wasn't quite uh, the fit that I'd hoped it would be. Um, and after a few years, I, I moved on, um, tried to start my own little oil company. And it turns out I have way too much appreciation for the risks of oil and gas investing <laughs> to be one. <laughs> I, I, I think the successful people in that business must be a little bit ignorant of just how likely it is to lose money. <laughs> and, but as, as I tried to bid on several of these properties, I met a lot of people who said, hey, I bought something else. Would you come take a look at it? And, you know, let me know. I'll pay you for your time. And so I did that and I enjoyed that. And I became a consultant. And so, yeah, so I thought I was going to do that forever. Just, you know, love that. Uh, being a consultant. Uh, over the years, I, I'd had a chance to be on a few boards at Oxy. I was on the board of an oil company in Siberia. I'd been on the board of directors of, of uh, SPE. I'd been the board of directors of a little uh, technology company called Pinnacle Technologies. A, uh, I'd been on the board of a computer modeling group, uh, a Canadian reservoir simulation software group. So I'd had these opportunities to do a lot of different business things. And so I uh, had, I knew people and consulting was fun. I enjoyed it. And at one point, uh, some friends of mine recommended that I go talk to some people at Baker Hughes because they were looking for this very senior position. And, um, uh, and I met the people at Baker Hughes and I really liked these people. 
you know, great people, great company. But I kept telling them, no, no, this is not the job for me. And finally, the CEO said, look, why do you keep saying this isn't the job for you? I said, well, look, for about 20% of this job, as I understand it, I'm probably the best candidate in the world. And for the other 80%, I'm wholly unqualified. <laughs> I, said, I think you need to switch that. And he said, well, we still want to do something with it. What do you want? I said, I'm a consultant. Let me just consult for you. And, uh, and he said, well, great. What do you have in mind? I said, well, I don't know. You've got offices all around the world. I'll, I'll go to those offices, you know, and talk to people and talk to customers and see, come back and give you some recommendations. And I wasn't even serious. I didn't think he'd say yes. <laughs> and he said, do it. And so after, uh, you know, a few months of this, I came back to him. I said, look, Baker Hughes problem is all of their products and services are in the wellbore in the immediate wellbore area. It's pumps, it's logs, it's packers, it's cement. It's what, and the reservoir is the part between the wellbores and you guys just aren't in there. So you need to have more capabilities there. Uh, and he says, you know, we just lost the opportunity to bid on a project because we didn't have that. I said, well, you want me to tell you what to do? He said, no, 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 that's not how Baker Hughes works. <laughs> you got to get people from all these different companies together and lead a project where, you know, they identify what to do next. I said, I get paid by the hour. I know how to drag things out. <laughs> so so uh, anyway, I brought this group together. We identified some companies. At Baker Hughes decided to buy Gaffney Klein and GM Mechanics International, two real leaders in their respective uh, areas. And uh, they made, I made the introductions for those companies. And then I went on to another consulting project I had to do. Uh, I was defending Shell in the reserve write down litigation. If you remember that reserve restatement. Um, and I got this call back from them. I said, look, we've, we've made the deal. We're going to buy these companies and we want you to come back and work for us. And, uh, so that Baker Hughes hired me to come back to run that total companies. And I bought five or six more little companies, uh, uh, along the way and spent the next decade with, uh, Baker Hughes. I spent 24 years with UPR and a few years with Oxy and some consulting time. And now I've at Baker Hughes, but I, I told him, I said, look guys, my wife and I have already got a plan where we plan to go do some humanitarian work together in about three years. And it's going to take us, you know, we're going to take off a year and a half or so. And, uh, and they said, well, what do you, what do you want to do? I said, well, when I went back to Stanford for my PhD, my employer wanted, wanted me to come back. So they left me on 20% of my salary while it's gone. How about you do that? And, uh, and he said, sure, I, I just never believe you. You know, if I've got to ask, give a piece of advice to young people, I said, you know, be careful what you ask for, because sometimes you get it. And so, um, so I, you know, I asked for that and they said, sure. So three years later, uh, I've passed on the reins of running these companies to someone else better qualified at running stuff than me. And, uh, my wife and I moved to Hong Kong and we're coordinating our churches, humanitarian efforts and travel all over Asia 
Mongolia to India to whatever, uh, helping train uh, volunteers, working with governments, working with projects. It was just clearly the best uh, 18 months of my life. If you don't mind me asking, how old were you during that 18 month period? Mid to late 50s. Uh, so uh, we had we really planned that for a long time. It was a kind of a goal of ours and really great time. And everything kind of worked together perfectly. My daughter moved back to take care of our house while we were gone. Uh, my mother-in-law was phenomenally healthy. She wasn't before or after. And so it was great. Um, and so I came back and I, I continued to work for Baker Hughes. Uh, but I almost immediately said, you know, the other thing I haven't done career-wise that I'd like to do is uh, become president of the Society of Petroleum Engineers. And I'd served on the board. And I was very active. And, and, and due to some very generous uh, uh, people, I'd gotten lots of awards and recognitions and things. Um, and so I'd been active in SP my whole professional career. And so I, I put my name in the hat and I didn't get it. <laughs> and uh, my boss said, well, why didn't you get it? You know, I said, well, they pick somebody else, you know. Pick, I said, well, what are you doing? I said, well, put my name in the hat next year. And uh, so and next year I did get it. And so that was, uh, became the 2016 president of SP. And the 2016 is actually the year you finish. And it, but it's a, you, you do a year after that. And I actually went up about three and a half years of almost full-time uh, engagement in that role. Because uh, Baker Hughes was hugely supportive and said, look, spend your time on that. Uh, they, were, they were great, uh, very, very supportive. And uh, Baker Hughes had never had an SBE president. And so it was, it was good. And I came back and I spent a few more years with Baker Hughes, uh, stayed through the GE purchase. Um, and I, I stayed until I was 65. And I told them all along that, you know, there, there's no way I'm staying past that. So that worked well for me. I started consulting again, but something happened that was, you know, I, I've had several honors and awards and things that were really great. And I, I you know, I, I don't know how you warrant these things really being SP president was a great honor for me, but the biggest honor I ever received in my life came out of the blue. I had no idea. Uh, and uh, I'd been consulting for a little bit and I got, a, uh, elected to the national Academy of engineering and most petroleum engineers really don't even know, uh, much about this. I didn't, I knew about it because I knew a lot of professors and, uh, that had, you know, were members of the NA and these were, these were like the famous people. Okay. <laughs> like I'm, I, I didn't particularly aspire to this. Uh, uh, you know, I didn't think this was realistic, but I got that honor and it, you know, the, for the last few years, we've had basically two petroleum engineering types each year get elected to that. Two. Yeah. <laughs> I got elected the same year that Elon Musk was elected for his contributions to SpaceX. After that, I said, you know, I, I might want to think about being, you know, going back to academia. I'd had a chance during my professional career. I left out a bunch of stuff. I did go teach at Stanford uh, for a couple of semesters. 
The reason was, and it was, again, I had a great boss at the time, George Lindahl. George Lindahl and Jack Messman and Scott Kramer. I, I, had some, I can't name them all, but I had some great bosses at UPR. And uh, at one point, I, I'd been offered a position to teach at Texas A&M. Just kind of, and uh, I told my boss I was going to go do it. And he said, no, 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 no. He says, I want you to go try this out. Whether it's at A&M or anywhere else, you go try it out. You just tell me how you want to do it. I'll support it. And if you still want to go be a professor, fine. But you're not going to just quit and go be a professor. And I said, okay. So I called Stanford. I said, hey, how about if I come out there and teach you know, for a semester or two? And uh, they said, well, how much do you want to be paid? I said, I don't want to be paid. You know? <laughs> I'm, I'm free. <laughs> they said, yeah, yeah. Okay, then you're a good deal. So I went out, there were actually quarters at the time. So I went a winter quarter for two years. And I, re I really learned what professors do, which is about 90% research, you know, about 10% teaching. Um, and, uh, and then all the exciting horizontal stuff really had, had been taking off. I said, man, I, I love this. I, UPRs, they're, they're doing so much exciting stuff in that space. So I went back there to, to, go work on that. And, uh, and, but when I decided to go back to academia, uh, I, you know, I looked at Houston and Rice and, you know, the most obvious candidates for me, but I live way up Northwest. That That's like an hour plus each way each day. Yeah, I don't know. So Texas A&M called them. You know, it's only an hour and 15 minutes for me to get from my house to Texas A&M going up to 49 plus a&m is a kind of a special place it's it's the number one petroleum engineering school in the country or in the world uh and uh there will be people who argue that and i'm not one who thinks rankings are useful uh, but uh when you're number one you you tend to change your mind about them a little bit but uh you don't want to devalue the currency, but in reality, you know, rankings are a little bit silly, but clearly Texanum has an outsized position in petroleum engineering, regardless of the ranking, because of the huge number of petroleum engineers that have come from Texas A&M, how influential they've become in the industry, how closely knit they are as, uh, you know, as A&M graduates, plus the long history of the really great uh, professors and who've been there and students who come from there. So, so while, you know, the University of Texas is also a very, very good program, we have lots of other very good programs. Uh, you know, A&M has a special place in petroleum engineering. Um, so when they called and they offered um, something called the Chancellor's Research Initiative, which was a $5 million startup fund that I could use for research and laboratory equipment. Um, you know, it just really made sense. So that's why I joined and I, I started, uh, you know, at the beginning of the summer and, uh, I'll be teaching a class on the energy transition starting in, in January. Well, starting in January, it's January already starting you know, in just over a week, uh, and, uh, uh, Mondays and Wednesdays. So I've, uh, looking forward to working with these students and 
the other professors. And already I've been, you know, in some collaborations with uh, uh, chemistry and mechanical engineering professors trying to put together proposals. We just put together two proposals that are in the general world of recycling certain kind of typically uh, refinery waste or other waste to extract minerals and make batteries. So, so I, I've had some opportunities that I never expected to have uh, in terms of uh, research contributions. That's neat. When I, when I hear your story, it kind of uh, makes me think of a few different things. A few different themes stick out to me. And one is, you know, you mentioned the role of risk and that you wanted to do something on your own. And this idea that, hey, you were analyzing risk in a little bit different way than others. And other people maybe had a massive appetite for risk uh, bordering on too much, bordering on reckless. I am amazed when you look at the world of oil and gas, there are so many different and really any position, whether it's petroleum engineering, whether you are trading commodities, uh, really any of the many positions within oil and gas, there are so many different risk levels that you can take from having your own company to being in a private equity backed startup to being at a very established company all the way up to a super major and even different risk profiles within individual companies. Um, so interesting to hear you touch on that. The second thing I noticed is that Baker Hughes role. You, you told the CEO, I am probably the best person in the world for 20% of this. And how true is it that it, it is always so valuable to go a mile deep and to be an expert, even if it's in something narrow, if you first took a look at that risk issue, you know, I, I have drawn this curve and efficient frontier type analysis many times uh, and tried to explain things in terms of risk and reward. And, and you really look, you look at service companies, they're, they're much earlier on that, lower on that curve. It's one of the reasons their returns are, are you know, less, even though their, their actual risk in terms of variability of return in that definition is, is really quite a bit higher than, than a lot of them perceive it to be. And so they don't, in many ways, get the returns that correspond to the, their risk. But uh, when you're starting something on your own, you don't have that portfolio. You know, some of the things that I was looking at would be an excellent addition from ex an expected value type analysis uh, to a portfolio of, of opportunities. But I was going to be able to do one or two. <laughs> and, and, and in reality, uh, just, just too much, uh, too much of a risk uh, for me at some level. So I, I bid less and I didn't capture it. Yeah. And the people who, the people who overestimated the values are underestimating the risk. Uh, they were the ones who captured that, you know, the winner's curse kind of things. And it turns out some of them did really, really well. The only one that I actually looked like I had won was uh, some tight gas that had been not fully developed, but it had been developed on trend at a much higher density. And, and I, I put a proposal together, which was, the final contract wasn't signed, but the, it had been verbally accepted. And, 
I was putting together the last bits of financing and the guy called me back and said, look, I just got an offer for four times what you offered me. <laughs> and he says, uh, he says, I, I, I really, you know, I, I, I feel bad, but I don't feel bad. <laughs> and I realized that, you know, do I, do I want to go try to push this? Do I want to go get lawyers and be tied up trying to force this? Uh, I didn't know whether that was going to happen. Uh, turns out that company hired me to help develop those fields. Uh, they were worth way more than either one of us had estimated uh, because of some timing on pricing and the success of this infill. And uh, so it was, it was uh, clearly something I maybe should have done. My life would have been quite a bit different. Uh, and uh, But really, uh, things have been good. Uh, so and I've enjoyed them. And I, I don't know that I would have enjoyed uh, that direction nearly as much as what I've done. That's a great point. As far as the, you know, Deep, there are different people. I had a chance uh, to put together some, uh, you know, videos of some successful people in petroleum engineering. And, you know, and it, it's amazing how some of them go very narrowly deep and some of them, the breadth can vary a great deal from these very general people uh, to people who, who know almost all of one area you know I, I they've worked drilling they've worked reservoir they've worked production and, and they've done them all fairly well from a technical point of view and, and some people are much more into the you know i i'm going to use the term management loosely but you know they've they haven't uh, dug uh, that well nearly so deep themselves so it's interesting uh to see that everyone has their own talent skill and, and you just got to learn to identify that and appreciate it. I <laughs> jokingly, um, uh, I told people, I said, after I'd been at Baker Hughes, I said, well, I, I told you guys, you know, that I wasn't really that good in this management stuff. That's why I want to pass this on to the other people. And one of the other officers said, yeah, you told us that, but we thought you were kidding. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. You know, the other thing that I'm pretty blown away by, and you kind of mentioned this, if that deal would have happened, your life could have been taken a different path. Um, and you think about where you've been. Uh, I grew up in Georgia, obviously significant time in Texas, significant connection to Stanford, and then a stint in Hong Kong. Uh, in your mid-50s, basically uh, kind of in the middle of your career, I think it's a poignant reminder that you don't need to map out every month of your life forever and that you can make decisions to align your values, what you care about, what you love with your life. And, and you can do things like go to Hong Kong for a year or two. Uh, and so that's a that's a really neat example uh, of trying to align your values with your life and money. We didn't actually know uh, that it was going to be Hong Kong. We, we were looking at different, you know, we were going to be open to different opportunities. Um, and so that was, that was really great for us. Um, I still surprise people from time to If I ran into, if there were some Chinese people here, I could carry on a little conversation 
well enough that you would think I spoke Chinese. They would know much better. <laughs> but uh, um, so it, it's been a, a great time. We made great friends. Looking back on it, it would be hard to plan out a career like this. But everyone has different you know, paths. And sometimes bad things happen that change your path. And, and you know, I know some people who uh, have, you know, look back on those and say, well, if, if I, that hadn't happened, if I hadn't gotten laid off here, I'd have never had this opportunity somewhere else. And so it's, it's really hard to say what, uh, what those right decisions are for you. That could not be more true. Uh, Nathan, I'm interested to hear a little bit about uh, your role with Texas A&M in thinking about kind of the next generation. So thinking about college students today, they have, I mean, if you're 18, 20, 21 years old, or even 25, you have basically lived your entire life in the middle of a very, you know, negative uh, media view on oil and gas, um, and so how do you think this next generation thinks about the industry in light of that? It's the existential challenge of petroleum engineering. Uh, I wrote a paper uh, almost a decade back called The End of Petroleum Engineering as We Know It. And it was um, rather controversial. I mean, just even, even though the paper itself was not controversial. It was the title was it. It gave an excuse for us to start having this discussion again. I remember dozens of times over my career, someone giving a talk that started out more or less with, you know, someone asked me if I would recommend to my children to become a petroleum engineer, and you know, yes, yes, yes. Um, and over the decades, we've always had negative views of the oil and gas industry. <laughs> yeah. I started 1976 when I came to work for, uh, I guess I uh, started my grad school at uh, Oklahoma in 75. There was a negative view of the oil and gas business then. Uh, and nobody has ever loved the oil and gas business in, in the company country writ large, um, even though they love using oil and gas. Uh, <laughs> And so, and they want it to be, you know, it's like electricity. They want it to be cheap and they want it to be available and want it to be right there. So fair enough. Uh, petroleum engineering has had this close tie. Hiring has been, had a close tie with oil prices. You know, maybe there's a little lag, but petroleum engineering enrollments and everything else have been pretty closely tied with hiring, which has been closely tied with pricing. Um, this last time, hiring has not followed pricing. Okay, the big jump in price in oil and gas. Well, you know, even from the rig counts, we we're not at the rig count. We were last time oil was this high, uh, and so we're not. We're also not at the hiring level. And while some of the universities, uh, Texas and Texas A and M, have really gotten back to enrollments pretty much closer to where they want to be. A lot of universities have not. And so will petroleum engineering still be needed in the future? There's nobody that nobody seriously thinks it will be. Uh, will we need, will we need a lot 
more, or as in my paper suggested, less uh, petroleum engineers in the future. Uh, hard to say, but the kind of roles for petroleum engineers include lots more in this machine learning and artificial intelligence type things, and more things in the energy transition space with carbon capture and storage. All of a sudden, we're seeing more petroleum engineers who are spending time in that. A lot of the research efforts in universities are headed that way. You know, in, in the 70s, you the, I think the majority of reservoir engineering research was associated with enhanced recovery in some way or the other. And today, I think it very well could be that the, the largest single thing is associated with carbon capture and storage. In fact, specifically storage. That represents a microscopic amount of the total capital you know, that's being spent. I mean, the bulk of the capital uh, is still for drilling and completions, uh, you know, followed by large facility type uh, things, whether it's refining or petrochemicals or uh, uh, LNG, you know, the, the lots of very conventional things are where the capital is still being spent. But the R&D is, is clearly moving in another direction. And a lot of the interest in students is moving in another direction. This is not just the United States. At the China University of Petroleum in Beijing, uh, which is the largest petroleum engineering school in the world, I think, and China has dozens of petroleum engineering uh, programs, but uh, CUPB actually has two facilities. But uh, the, I talked to a professor there and like many universities, engineering students rank their top three choices. So if you apply as an engineer at the University of Texas, you will rank your top three choices. And uh, years ago, petroleum engineers, you know, we got their, they got their entire freshman class from people who had number one petroleum engineering. And, and now there might, most of their petroleum engineering students might have come just a few years ago from people who didn't have petroleum engineering in their top three. They got accepted engineering, but they couldn't get any mechanical or civil or whatever. So at CUPB, they do the same thing. And for many years, computer engineering type things have been number one. That, that, and that probably isn't going to change anytime, anytime soon. But the number two, a couple of years ago, was a new program that they'd never had before. No one had ever graduated. No one had ever gotten a job in it carbon capture and storage. That was the number two choice among freshmen. And bottom three out of four were petroleum engineering, petroleum geophysics, and petroleum geology, three, three of the bottom four. At the Chinese University of Petroleum. So uh, it's not just in the United States that this popularity issue, and, and when oil prices were low, now we're, seeing, we're definitely seeing recovery. We're definitely seeing hiring improvements. Uh, we're definitely seeing internships increase, and I, I hope this continues. But are we seeing, you know, are the best and brightest students coming to petroleum engineering? Petroleum engineering is no longer the highest paying straight out of college job by several of the surveys I've seen. You know, it's high, it's, it's, it's attractive, and it uh, will remain attractive. But, you know, I, I think that... Um, uh, we're not perceived as fungible, you know, in, in being able to be engineers in a broader sense. Um, we're also like nuclear engineering and aerospace engineering and mining engineering, textile engineering, a few others, 
closely associated with just one industry. And so demand is highly correlated with the rise and fall of that industry. And so uh, some majors like textile engineering disappeared. I mean, we have one university in America that still offers a degree in textile engineering. Used to be, when I was a student at Georgia Tech, it's a huge program. Uh, they had 100% placement every year. It was, you know, great. That's all gone. That's been exported completely. In spite of the fact that we produce more textiles on the planet than we ever have in the past, we have super high-tech textile stuff, you know, from space shuttle stuff to, you know, astronaut, you know, all this wicking, whatever, you know, all this high-tech stuff. They use all sorts of machine learning and everything else in their factories and et cetera. So there's lots of high tech involved in textile engineering. Just textile engineers have gone away. Chemical engineers do that and other groups have sort of subsumed that. So we don't, we can't rule out the risks for petroleum engineering. I just happen to think that um, we continue to attract a lot of really good students who really actually want to be petroleum engineers. Um, and I, I, I think the demand for a significant number of them is going to continue for decades. Is it impossible for us to go back to $40 oil? It's not impossible. The easiest path to $40 oil is a global recession. And those aren't, those aren't out of the, uh, you know, there's lots of ways to get there. And we've got the ignition for several of those things happening now. You know, as you were mentioning your career path, uh, I was kind of laughing internally because the first thing I was thinking is, oh, what do you know? Oil and gas has always been kind of a volatile, you know, commodity. <laughs> and you're right. That's going to continue, even though there's going to be tremendous demand and incredible opportunity for students who pursue it. If you don't mind, Nathan, I'd love to do a few rapid fire questions and get your thoughts on some of these. First one, from my perspective, there's been a kind of a consolidation in Houston. And so less oil and gas presence in Dallas, for example, less majors in Dallas, even less super majors in Oklahoma relative to Houston over the past 10, 20 years. So first rapid fire, do you see Houston continuing to kind of dominate the petroleum engineering job market? I think so. Of course, Midland continues to be a big player there. But uh, you left out New Orleans and a couple of other places that have also taken the brunt of the consolidation effort. I think uh, depending on what, uh, what happens with Southwestern Chesapeake, that could be another uh, blow to Oklahoma City. Uh, hard to say. I don't know any facts about that. Um, but uh, those were those are really going to continue. I don't see the growth elsewhere being so much that uh, that consolidation would not continue. Um, uh, you know, you look around the world, and there's only a handful of places where uh, international oil and gas. You know, lots of Africa's running out of Paris, and a lot of stuff in. Uh, London and Aberdeen, and and uh, the the rest of these are national oil companies, so they stay locally. But you look where the IOCs are, where the domestic uh, large companies are, the talents here, the resources are here. Uh, uh, I just think we continue to 
be the center and and it, it, at the expense of Dallas, Oklahoma City, and Denver. Certainly. Uh, next question. When you think about the next 20, 30 years, are you bullish on Texas as a state and why? It's hard not to be bullish on Texas in, in, in a lot of ways. I, I you know, we've, we've got a lot of things going for us. We have a lot of, we have some challenges in terms of uh, stresses on the economy. Uh, we're going to have some challenges as over the next 20, 30 year range, starting for some, some climate uh, issues. I, I think we, you know, I don't think we're quite there where we've really felt those yet. We're going to have some population and transportation challenges, uh, you know, lots of those, except the, the excitement, enthusiasm of working in a state where uh, entrepreneurship is, is really, uh, you know, you got a lot of capabilities and whether it's medical stuff or technology stuff. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, if you were a tech company, you know, you, you want to go someplace where there's Apple and there's uh, Tesla and there's all these, uh, you know, TI stuff. Well, that's Austin, you know, but that uh, I'm, I'm actually kind of excited about the college station area. <laughs> They've got the same sort of brain power area, but they haven't had that quite had that price run up. Uh, so I, I anticipate that entire area up to Waco and, and down to San Antonio and out college station, that, that large area, which besides having, you know, pretty good barbecue, it's got a lot of uh, brain power, a lot of young people who want to live there. It's not got the traffic necessarily. Some others do. Um, I think you'll see a lot of companies relocate to these areas. We'll have water challenges. We'll have power challenges. We'll, you know, lots of issues. But, you know, if I, if I compare Texas to Florida, uh, bless her heart, Florida is a great place to go on vacation. But I, I think we'd, I'd rather, much rather, rather live here in uh Lone Star State. I'm right there with you. Um, last rapid fire question. So you have deep connections to Georgia Tech um, and certainly big connections to OU, Stanford. Have you become a little bit of an Aggie? I will tell you what happened sort of the first day I showed up at A&M. One of the professors who had done his undergraduate degree at, at A&M uh, came up to me and he, he pointed to his ring. You know, I guess it was over here someplace. And he says, Mehan, you don't have one of these. You're never going to have one of these. <laughs> you are not an Aggie. The best you can be is Aggie adjacent. And I said, well, that's kind of what I'm going for. You know, <laughs> I'm, I, I uh, find myself cheering for A&M in football. Uh, I find myself, uh, uh, you know, excited about, uh, college station. I find myself encouraging people to go to A&M uh, a lot more than I would have a decade ago, where it was just, you know, kind of another college. Um, I've been recruiting here since really the late 70s. So I've known Aggies. My real mentor professionally was Scott Kramer, the late Scott Kramer, and he was an Aggies Aggie. So I've always had, you know, a lot of respect for Texas A&M. Uh, but now, it's it's becoming more. I'm becoming more aggy. Like I, you know, I'm, I'm wearing this because it's warm. Uh, plus, somebody gave it to me. Uh, no, they haven't given me a lot of aggy stuff yet. But I figure I'll get get more over time. And this year, I have a uh, 
beautiful three-year-old granddaughter and I gave her an AM cheerleader dress and the little bows and I've given Aggie stuff to all my grandkids and they're showing up wearing their AM soccer or AM golf football shirts. So yep, I'm I'm getting there. I'm moving there. I'll be brief with this, but you know, I am if you listen to this podcast, I talk about this way too often. I have 50 living relatives with degrees from Kansas State. I knew I was going to Kansas State when I was 18 months old. I love Kansas State. And I am probably the biggest fan anyone in Texas will meet ever. So I grew up uh, with a, a sheer hatred for, for the Aggies because of the 1998 Big 12 championship game. We were headed to the national title. They just totally blew it up uh, in what is kind of a... a act of God, freak nature, fourth quarter and overtime. Uh, but we won't even go into that. But uh, my wife, um, who is the smartest out of the two of us, um, she went back to law school about three years ago and chose A&M over some of the top law schools in the country. Uh, and a lot of this was for two reasons. Uh, one reason is, well, I own a business in Texas. And so having a presence in Fort Worth and Houston makes it super conducive to, you know, the primary vehicle for our family. Uh, but then the second reason is we felt okay saying no to top law schools because, you know, you look at the A&M endowment, you look at what they do in every college and there's a standard of excellence. Uh, and lo and behold, you know, my wife is now at the end of that program and A&M is becoming one of the top law schools in the country. Uh, and exact same thought. Um, I'm becoming a massive appreciator of the Aggies. Uh, and we really have started to have a warm spot in our heart. Uh, and my wife went to Arkansas. So there's a little bit of a rivalry there with A&M. But uh, same, same story for us. I'll tell you this. The story that impressed some friends of mine, my college roommate and uh, from the early 1970s, uh, and his wife live in Chicago and we get together all the time. We went to each other's weddings We're we've stayed friends. Uh, and we're both big opera fans. And, uh, my wife and I have traveled the world going to operas everywhere. And we go up there for Chicago operas and they come. Matter of fact, they're coming down here for Parsifal, uh, in just a few weeks. So they were down here for an opera, uh, last year. And I said, look, I'm, I'm going to go to A&M. Uh, be a professor. I want you to, I, I had not, you know, I had not started. I wasn't working there at all. I'm not even sure I'd accepted the job yet, but I was, I was pretty sure I was planning to. And so uh, let, we went on campus and what astounded me, I, I wanted to go see all these. I had this list of all the various statues and buildings and whatever. I, we were going to take the big tour. And every so often I'd stop and we talked to a couple of students and it was stunning how polite and enthusiastic and excited these students were to be at Texas A&M. And now I've, I've been around a lot of universities. I, at Tech, as a uh, SPE president, I made a real point of going to lots of different universities, probably more than any other SPE president. And so, but there on the A&M campus, I was just, uh, you know, it was really a little surprising. And my roommate was, you know, Kim was just stunned. 
he he says, I can't believe these kids. This is this are these are amazing, and uh, and they were just. Uh, Am attracts some great great students, um, and so I I uh, hope to be helpful to that that bunch. Uh, I hope to uh, uh, be able to improve their chances of success professionally, and because uh, I I know that my chance of success as a researcher is going to depend on those grad students as well. Absolutely. That's very neat. Well, uh, Nathan, we only have a minute or two left, but I would love to finish on this. Nathan has six children, several grandchildren, and we were chatting about donor advice funds before we recorded this. And you mentioned that you try to include your grandchildren each year in where your family gives charitably. Would you mind just telling a little bit about that and going into detail there? Sure, and this is really the reason we went with the donor advice fund route, um, and so uh, I've been building that up over quite a long time. And each year, my children, as a group, decide where our most significant contributions will be made from that. And so they'll pick one or two or three funds depending on you know what they've seen, what they feel is meaningful. And the research that they've done, so they communicate in terms of where those gifts are going to be made. But starting at age eight and increasing at age twelve, uh, the grandkids have an opportunity, and they always take advantage of it to direct where some of the donations from the donor advice fund will go. So, I, uh, my goal and my wife's goal, more than passing on money, is to pass on our values, philanthropic support. And in our case, um, you know, encouraging people to be self-sufficient and uh, have, you know, have rely, you know, be personally reliable. So educational things and food initiatives and some other things. We have a kind of general theme that the kids actually pick what they want. And, and a lot of times emergency relief uh, is important for them as well. But they pick. And, and we don't really, you know, haven't really questioned it. You know, if uh, the younger ones, sometimes, the, you know, they don't do as much research. But by the time they're 12, it's astounding how much analysis and research they've done to pick where their donations go. So sometimes it, it's impressive compared to where the, what their parents have done. <laughs> That's incredible. What a fantastic story. What a great idea to, just like you mentioned, it's wonderful to pass on money. It's, it's a tremendous thing to pass on money to children and grandchildren. Uh, a good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children, but to pass on values is, is so significantly important. Well, my son phrased it well. He said, so you want us to get together and decide how we're going to spend our inheritance on charitable giving? <laughs> so, yeah. Matter of fact, that's exactly that's a great way to phrase it. Well, Nathan, thanks so much for joining us on the Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals podcast. Uh, we will have show notes. Um, so if you want more information or to connect with Nathan on LinkedIn, we will include that in the show notes. And uh, as always, send us any messages for ideas for future podcasts, uh, podcasts at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. You can subscribe or connect with us at brownleewealthmanagement.com or send ideas for future episodes to podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.
This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed during this show or episode should be viewed as investment, legal, and tax advice. If you have questions pertaining to your specific situation, please consult the appropriate qualified professional.